Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 206 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is the always insightful, warm, and funny Judith Hansen Lasseter. Judith let me know on this episode that she is celebrating 50 years of teaching yoga next year. So it's always just amazing and wonderful to talk to her. In case you have been hiding under a yoga rack and you're not familiar with Judith. She's been teaching since 1971. She is also a trained physical therapist and has a doctorate in East-West psychology. She's one of the founders of Yoga Journal, and she is a pioneer in restorative yoga. She's authored more than 10 books on yoga, and one of her most popular books is Relax and Renew, Restore and Rebalance. She has a new book coming out August 25th. It's called Yoga Myths, What You Need to Learn and Unlearn for a Safe and Healthy Yoga Practice. And I will put a link on the show notes page to her website, judithhansenlasseter.com, where you can pre-order her book and get 30% off if you order before August 25th. So good timing for this podcast. So we talked about her book today, and these yoga myths are things that you have likely come across in your own practice or teaching, things like you have to tuck your tailbone to protect your lower back or pull your abdominals back in toward your backbone. And, you know, with Judith's combined many years of teaching and her physical therapy training, she pieces together really in a, in a really thorough, digestible way, the pitfalls of, of just falling into a trap of believing that this one instruction is the way that you have to do, do things. I was also really happy that I had a chance to ask Judith how she's doing with shelter in place. We're still pretty sheltered and locked down here in San Francisco. We we don't have retail stores open. Schools are not open. You can go and get takeout, but that's about it. You know, I don't even think outdoor restaurant areas are open. And I just felt like someone who spent so much time in her life being a proponent of stillness and quiet and and taking time would have a really nice approach to this time. So it was really great to talk to her about that and always just great to connect with her. I know that you will enjoy this interview. And just as a quick reminder, if you are interested in studying with Jason, he has a number of teacher training intensives available online this fall. The first one is coming up September 22nd. It is his Mastering the Art of Yoga Sequencing program. And we ran it in June. It was great. Everyone had a great experience. We were so happy. <laughs> we feel like we've kind of got this, this online workshop slash training thing under our belts now. And if you want to find out more or register, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash sequencing. Enjoy the interview with Judith. So Judith, I am so happy to talk to you again and was so excited when I got your book in the mail. Jason took it right out of my hands as soon as I received the book. But I want to start by asking how you are doing with shelter in place. I think of you as just you have so much wisdom and insight about stillness that I think people will love hearing from you about how you're doing and how how you're coping. Well, thank you. It's it's just an honor to be on such a highly regarded podcast with such a wise woman herself. So thank you for inviting me to come back. Absolutely. You know, it's the ultimate compliment as a yoga teacher when a student comes back. Yes, it's very Not that true. they come, but that they come back. <laughs> so the, my world before the virus was 
much busier in the world in some ways. I was traveling a fair amount, teaching in person a fair amount. And the way I choose to look at it is I'm still traveling, but it's more in my mind mm. over the internet, you mm-hmm. know, seeing my grandchildren on FaceTime more instead of in person. And I'm still doing my work, the work I love to do, sharing yoga, but it's just in a different, it's lesson and it's in a different way. So I like to focus on that I'm still getting to do what I want to do in a modified form. It's not that everything is gone, but personally, I'm very lucky in so many ways. First of all, I think we're all lucky that we study yoga because we've been, we've been preparing for this for years, if not decades, of how to be still and how to be quiet and how to be where you are. I mean, that's the, that's the residue of the work. And we do asana. A lot of us have asana-based practice, not that that's all that we do, but, you know, we really need that. And the way I think of it is that asana is teaching us the physical act of letting go, which mimics the mental act of letting go, Mm -hmm. which we really need right now, which mimics the spiritual act of letting go, Mm -hmm. which is the realization that it wasn't about you anyway. That's right. You don't have as much control as you thought. I, I feel very fortunate that I don't have young children or work that I cannot do from home or work that is dangerous and that I have my home to stay in. I'm not worried about eviction and having a little garden on the balcony and just so many things that help to make this someone to be with who Mm -hmm. I care for. Mm -hmm. And I feel very fortunate that probably the top of the list is my my great humble gratitude for the practice of yoga sustains me because I go through kind of a a virus menstrual cycle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) meaning I'm like today, I'm just really full of gratitude and happiness and everything is great. And, And then about every five to seven days, I have a moment where I just start to cry and I just feel sad and I miss my grandchildren and I, I just miss going to a restaurant or I yes. just, oh my gosh, that's know, my, thing my little childish temper tantrum state. I just want it to be different. And that's when, when the mat metaphoric or literal comes into play that this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And my mother and Mr. Eingar were both born in 1918 in the, during the virus. Oh, wow. During the special. So that I feel kind of more connected to that in a way. And there's a wonderful book that I highly recommend. It's not a yoga book. It's called Influenza. Hmm. And it's all about the pandemic, which was a flu, but it was a pandemic in 1918. And I think it's strange to think about reading about a pandemic when what we want to do is escape from thinking about a pandemic Mm -hmm. but ironically it's almost homeopathic you know like cures like like when we when I read that book years ago and and when I think about that pandemic it actually helps me in this one Hmm. 
And is that because you like they got through it? They got through it. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways it was so much worse. Yeah. Be, just because of bodies in the street, literally. Oh, and we have technology like this, which can partly feed our need for affiliation and connection and human contact, which is, which is a blessing that we can see and talk to each other, even though we can't physically be together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I could not agree more about, you know, we've been sort of training up for this. I feel like I go through waves too. I go through these waves of like, oh, this is just such a relief to not be driving everywhere anymore and rushing to this and rushing to that. And, you know, there's just so much solitude and, and quiet. And even when I walk in my neighborhood, it's, it's, it's quiet. And then I go through the wave of like, oh my God, I just want to sit in a restaurant and not be terrified again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you know, it's all going to come back. It's all yeah. going to come back. First of all, everything ends, but, you know, it's quite a Buddhist thought. But I mean, impermanence, what I think is happening right now on a mega level is that everyone in the world, virtually, has the lesson of impermanence in front of their face mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Because as my older son sent me this hashtag early on, he said, hashtag everything is canceled. And what I, you know, what I responded with, yeah, every, we don't know, we don't know when everything is going to go back or if it's going to go back, but let's say it does basically go back. We don't know when we, that's going to happen. And we don't even know when we can plan, you know, we can't plan anything now and we don't even know when we might be able to plan anything. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for me because I'm a planner. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's helped me. All my workshops have pretty much gone online, but, but some of them we've like rescheduled for a year and a half away, even to end of 2022. Mm-hmm. And somehow <laughs> who knows what, it's going to happen in 2022. I don't pretend to know, but seemingly it looks like I'll be teaching again in late 2021, you know, or mid yeah. to late 20. And so that's comforting to me to have some hope. Right. But there's a wonderful poem, Buddhist poem, which is chaos is the nature of reality. All order is temporary. The dying flower is losing its order and returning to its home in chaos. So everything is as it is. And when I sign my emails these days, I often write, stay well, stay safe, and be happy anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We need to find joy in whatever way we can find it right now. Because... We took joy for granted. Oh, I'll have fun on Friday night when I'm having dinner with my friends. Mm-hmm. We can't do that anymore. So we have to find it in the moment. We have to find it in the simple things. And I know you mentioned not rushing around, and I like that too. And I found that sometimes we just go outside and sit on the steps and eat our dinner. You know, it's so we nice. just do something that's just about enjoying the moment, really enjoying the moment. 
you know, I see people around my neighborhood. Well, first of all, there's, there are, you know, actual garage bands all over the place these days in San Francisco. You know, you take a walk and there's a garage band playing out of their, their garage with people just watching. I've seen that like three or four times. And mm-hmm. yeah, I see people often having like a stoop date, you know, just sitting out on their stoop, talking to their neighbors or because I have a daughter, she's eight and she does need to see other kids or she'd go crazy. We'll do like bike riding play dates with friends. Those are pretty safe or just, just being outside. We're just, whenever we see other kids, we're just always outside. So even though I spent a great deal of time with her outside in the past, now it's even more. It's like our whole life outside, you know, outside of the family is outdoors right now. And that's been really nice. I mean, it's been really beautiful. We've taken walks in so many different neighborhoods, ridden, and they have those in San Francisco, they have the slow streets where they've closed off streets. So you can ride your bike safely. I, I actually wish that that would last forever. We've been, one of her friends lives over in the Richmond and we've been riding up and down Lake Street and just looking at the Golden Gate Bridge while we ride our bikes. It's like, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. When it first started, the quarantine early on, and we would go for walks in the morning. You know, we, we'd we'd have a mask on, but pull it down, and then if we got anywhere, ten, we saw anybody, we'd just put our mask right up. But mm-hmm. we would ride by, and the the muni, the municipal railway, and also the buses were still really running. And so when we'd walk by, like it'd be pretty empty in the drive. We'd wave at the driver and. If we'd see kids on the other side of the street, we'd wave at them. We hung a teddy bear in our window and yeah. we just see, you know, we'd go on walks and we'd see people, the same mom with her two kids. The little boy was always running ahead. The little girl was lagging behind, you know, like we, we got to see them. How are you all doing today? You know, and that part of it is fantastic. I can't imagine before the virus waving at a bus driver and having yeah. to do that. <laughs> it was really, we're all in this together. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the book just dropped, right? How is that Actually, going? I mean, it drops on the 25th of August. So ah, you okay. have an early, early Ooh, edition. That's right. I forgot woman. that you send that, sent that to me personally. That's right. Ooh, so I have a sneak preview. I wanted to say just before we segue into the book, it's great that you and Lizzie had already worked on cultivating the online side of your business. So I, I imagine it wasn't too challenging technically for you to move stuff online, to move your teaching online. No, there's so many wonderful things about working with Lizzie. First of all, she's my daughter and I tend to like her. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she's, I would never have gone online. But she's got the techie part. Right. She knows about the publicity part and she knows the techie part and she's also a yoga teacher. So she knows the yoga part. And so for four more, a little more than four years, we've been selling courses online and learning the do's and don'ts and ups and outs and ups and downs and ins and outs of what looks good on screen. What, what do people relate to? Yeah. How important certain lighting is. What about the pacing? And one of the things that I like is I don't know if you ever commuted or ever listened to morning talk radio on in your car or at home or something. They often have two people talking. 
it's not just one person talking at you. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You, yeah. Right. So I think that that part of it, us being in dialogue, you know, maybe we'll do an anatomy part and then we'll do, or we'll do a philosophy part weaving in, you know, the philosophy of yoga, whatever we're doing. And then if we're doing something that requires asana, then she goes to her mat and she demos and we have a conversation. Yeah. And people like it because I believe they feel part of the conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, it's very much like your work, like this. Mm -hmm. People, we, you and I are actually literally having a conversation (laughs) and other people are now part of it. Right. That creates a level of connection and warmth Mm -hmm. that I think is really uh, nourishing. Yeah. We always have it so people can quote unquote on Zoom, uh, Wish I'd bought Zoom stock a couple of years ago. I know, but, uh, <laughs> I know. but uh, can raise their hand, and and I can have a, a personal interaction with them. Yeah, and that feeds my my need, my enjoyment of my pleasure with personal contact in teaching. Mm-hmm. It helps take the objectiveness out of the distance away. Right. Thank yeah. God. We have- I know. I know. I think, I think that almost every day. I didn't have that in 1918, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that teaching with Lizzie, it's like energizing. I feel the same way when Jason's on the podcast, every once in a while we'll interview someone together or we'll just talk to each other for a podcast. And like you said, when you have that rapport with someone, it's fun. It's really fun. And for us, like as a husband and wife with a young kid and he, you know, he used to travel so much. It was such a nice little moment of connecting over something we've always connected over. And I'm sure it's nice for you too, to connect with your daughter in that way. Like that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Challenge is the time zone. Right, we right, right. That out. Yeah, yeah. I know she had twins not too long ago. They're still ten babies. Ten months she, ago. Ten months ago. Is she joining you online these days, or is she taking a little? Oh, break? absolutely. We oh, just. You know, you mentioned the book, the, my book that's coming out, the Yoga Myths book. We just did a whole recorded a whole course based on that book. Oh, nice! Oh, brilliant! That's it's so brilliant. Be coming out soon as well. That is so brilliant. Chapter by chapter. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I want to do it. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the book. So I want to just say, I loved the intro because I just love the way you set the tone and there's one little part. Well, there's two parts from the intro that I pulled out that I love. One is, I know you can do more in your poses, but can you do less? Ah, And that is so salient for what we're going through right now, right? Can you talk about why you feel that's such an important thing? Why that's important to teach? Well, I'm not sure you can teach it. I think you can talk about it Mm -hmm. and I think you can model it, but I'm not sure. I'm going to back, go off a sidetrack if you'll let me for a minute. Sure. I'm not sure we teach anybody anything. Yeah, that's probably true. I think that what we do or maybe what my ideal of the best teachers would do, I hope that I do it, is we create an environment in which people choose to learn. Mm. 
And that's true for your daughter's teachers. They, if they create the right environment, the kids are brimming over with curiosity because children have natural curiosity. You have to work at losing it. And I think sometimes too rigid schools do that. But, but this idea that we can't make anybody learn anything, people learn things, but they learn it in their way, in their time. I mean, that's what evolution, integration, the whole process of spiritual integration is about. None of these lessons are new, but they're discovered by you, by me, by Jason, mm -hmm. by all the people who practice. We discover them and then they become ours. And that's what teaching does is it creates the environment with words, with touch perhaps, the setting with the with the energetic vibration of the class and all the way tools that we use and so many of us have as i was saying before an asana important asana component to our work and so what i think happens when we teach with a certain amount of knowledge about alignment and somewhat precision like when you're playing a musical instrument you're playing an f flat sharp you're playing an f sharp you're a G flat or whatever you're playing, you need to be precise with that. There's a certain precision. And that's one of the things the book talks about. But eventually I think that the integrity of the asana becomes vibrant, if you will, without any effort. And it, it has a way of becoming clear without struggle. Mm. And thus it becomes the seat of refuge. Hmm. And then we experience a quietness that spontaneously arises. I mean, I know how quietness can arise. It sounds noisy, like a noisy process. But, but when, when the asana it becomes the seat of refuge, then we have, you know, this spontaneous quietness. Yeah. And that is freedom. And that's what spiritual techniques are about. Pranayama, meditation, chanting, whatever it is, asana. The technique in and of itself, and maybe this is heresy, the technique itself is not holy. The residue is holy. The residue is sacred. What it's pointing to is sacred because it's all pointing to the inner being, mm -hmm. our little piece of divinity. It's part, pointing toward the whole, the one, whatever we call it, God, Yahweh, I don't know. Call it whatever you want, <laughs> Krishna. It's point, all the techniques of yoga are to be respected and revered because of what they leave the footprints they leave on our body, mind, and soul, the residue they create, which is what allows us to be free of the tyranny of the mind. Mm -hmm. So the book is about, it started out being about what we need to unlearn in order to be safe and happy on our yoga mat. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting discussion with my publishers who are Shambhala 
And I tell this because I think it's so funny. I very much enjoy working with everyone I worked with at Shambhala. I will say they're lovely to work with. But they they weren't so keen. You know, the titles of books don't often come from the authors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because there's marketing decisions, design decisions. How is it going to look on the cover? Literally. How is it going to appeal to the market? I mean, I don't know. That's not my area of expertise. If I have any expertise at all. But they they weren't so keen on the word unlearn. Hmm. And I was very keen on the word unlearn because and finally I just had this moment. I was so proud of myself and conversation with a couple of people. And I said, but isn't that what spiritual practice is about? Unlearning our ways, our beliefs and our way of thinking about reality. That's only so partial. Mm-hmm. Isn't it about unlearning to be identified with our thoughts and they kind of went, uh, oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> so we compromise and they put, you know, what we need to learn and unlearn in order to be safe and happy on our yoga mat. And so the book grew out of, well, next year will be, next July coming up, 2021 will be my 50th year of teaching. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I know. Yeah. So that's a pretty good landmark. And I, so I've seen a lot. I've taught a lot of classes. I've spent years teaching things that I now, which really shake my head at my younger me. I've done it all basically. I've pretty much seen it all. And so there are some concepts that are frequently taught around the world in the yoga world. And many of the systems of yoga that we have, Hatha yoga, all kinds of physical asana practice, which we know isn't just physical, but for shorthand, the poses that do not make sense based on what I have learned, A, as a physical therapist, and I was a yoga teacher first, about the anatomy and kinesiology Mm -hmm. of the body, and what I've learned in my own practice, and what I've observed in teaching. And I'll give you an example, if I may. Sure. One of those, what I call yoga myths, and I'm not about making people wrong. This, let me backtrack. I never say it's wrong, whatever they do. It's mm-hmm. just not what I want them to do. Mm-hmm. Because the way I train my teachers is to say, the question to ask me is, is not, is it right or wrong? The question to ask yourself is, what effect do I get if I do it this way? What effect do I get if I do it that way? Because right. it's about the residue. And that's where we need to examine the residue of doing the pose a certain way. What residue does that leave in my body mind? And is that what I want right now? Okay, then consciously choose it. But here, so that's my, that's my approach. I never say wrong or right in a yoga class. I'll say, I'm worried about the safety of your knee in that pose. Or would you be willing to try it this way? I think you might enjoy the pose better. Mm -hmm. So one of them is trikonasana, which is widely, widely taught. And there's this meme in the yoga world. I hear it everywhere from all different systems of yoga. It's about do the pose like you're doing it between two panes of glass. glass. Right. (laughs) First of all, my joke is you don't want to hang out with anybody who does yoga between two panes of glass. Trust me on that one. That's really true. (laughs) And second of all, that instruction 
to my understanding, is not in harmony with what's actually going on in the hip joints, the sacroiliac joint, and the lumbar spine. Mm -hmm. The hip joint is a round surface moving over a round femoral head. And if you bend straight, and this is elaborated clearly in the book, Mm -hmm. I hope it's clear. I've been told it's clear. When you bend sideways and you hold the pelvis stable, you're doing something completely different to the body, which can strain the sacroiliac joints. But if you allow the pelvis to move, the pelvis is smarter than we are. Hmm. The pelvis is smarter than you. It's smarter than me. It knows how to move. If you slightly let the pelvis move and the top hips slightly come forward, people freak out. It's not collapsing. It's allowing. Then the spine moves out of the pelvis like a river. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's one of the things I talk about in the book. There's a whole 11 chapters of them. I've had the experience and one of the most dramatic ones that comes to mind about that is I was teaching a workshop, I'd say 10 years ago on the hip joint. And so we were working, we started out working with trichinosana because trichinosana is trichiosana. It's quite complicated. It really is. And if you analyze it kinesiologically of what's happening. And so there was a woman there and I said, anybody having, have a question, whatever. And she raised her hand and she said, I've been doing this pose for 10 years and it really hurts my hips. Hmm. Of course, I then think, well, this is what I don't want people to do is to get, if it's hurting you, then please question. Mm-hmm. You know? Like what effect am I getting? Just because the teacher says it, no one lives in your body, but you. So trust your body first. And then you need to find a teacher you trust and then have a conversation literally and metaphorically when they say do X and you, you try X and it works or it doesn't or whatever. So I go to, and she was, I went to her and said, could we see your trick in Austin? Would you mind showing everyone? And she said, no. And so I take people at their word. Mm -hmm. So she was up and I was gently, you know, just observing and she was really holding her hip back extremely. So with her permission to touch, I put my hands on her lightly and gently and invited her body just to let go of that back hip in a slight way where it just kind of wrote the hip joints roll over the femoral heads. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and her eyes got so big and she started to cry. Mm -hmm. And she said, that is the first time in 10 years I've never had pain in my hip joint in that house. Yeah. And I just gave her a humble namaste because you know, I'm just so grateful to be part of her life being pain-free. But that's just one example that I've gotten over the decades. So many times people have discovered that when they trust their body and they let the natural intelligence of the body be part of the conversation, instead of thinking of the asana as something we impose on the body, to think about asana as something that we expose, that, that arises out of us, this, this archetypal form. Mm-hmm. And how can this body at this moment, at this age, with this abilities or these challenges, express the beauty of the archetype of trikonasana? What are the natural laws of movement, if you will? Mm-hmm. And, 
invite that into being part of the conversation. Now, I have one, one other example, which I'd like to give you if you have time for another one. Absolutely. All right. One of the things you hear a lot is in Tadasana mountain pose is to put the weight on all four corners of your feet. Mm-hmm. You probably heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many you may times. have taught that or heard that as a student. I don't know if you've taught before, but that's Years really ago. common. Yeah. yeah. But if you look at the body from the side, if you can imagine, you're looking at someone on their side and you see they're facing, you know, straight ahead and you see the head, the shoulder, you know, then the pelvis and you go down to the knee joint and then you see the lower leg and you notice, and you tell me now, where does the lower leg join the foot? At the the back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. It doesn't join in the middle. Mm. Because imagine if it came down in the middle and then the feet went equally to both sides. right. I see what you're saying. Or something, right? (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah. Which wouldn't be bad, but I love the Hobbit. So, <laughs> but if you look at it as an architect or an engineer or a physicist that understands load bearing, and you look at the way the tibia, the shin bone comes down at the back of the foot, where there's a square, large talus and a larger calcaneus, these are heavy, strong bones. Mm-hmm. Weight bearing is at the back of the foot. And then you have the tarsals and the metatarsals and the phalanges, long slender bones of balance and balance Mm -hmm. and propulsion. So I teach, I don't teach even on all four corners because that makes you bring your weight forward. If you stand two thirds on the back of the foot, then that weight is conducted through the arch into the balls of the feet. So you can rise up on them. You can spring, you can run Mm. you can walk. And so that's what makes sense to me is to look, especially obvious in this simple example, to look at what the body structure is telling me about how it wants to be and stand and move. Mm -hmm. So tell me, I would love to hear your feedback about that and or trikonasana. Well, I just want to, like for a moment, just back up because it's it's just reminding me, you know, when you were talking in the beginning of the conversation about technique, right? And how all of these techniques that we practice are to get us to that place of stillness and of unlearning and of remembering. And I think that this is just such an interesting, um, when you brought up the woman who was told for so many years to do triangle a certain way and I'm sure that that woman told her teacher a time or two, well, it hurts to do it this way. And they said, well, that's the alignment of trying Like, in other words, that's the technique. And it's like, we have so, you know, from time to time, we conflate the idea of technique with, like you said, it's really about the residue. It's not about everyone doing it exactly the same way all the time. First of all, I believe that that teacher believed she was teaching, was teaching from her best heart. Sure, sure, absolutely. Loving intention. So I think that people misunderstand. Well, what I let me just say what I say when I'm training teachers. I tell them that what I do is I teach people first and poses second. Mm. So I want them to look with soft eyes at that particular person who's standing in front of them. 
and really see, first of all, I train them. Observation is the most incredible skill for yoga, if, yoga teachers. If you can't see what your student is really doing and understand it, you can't really help them. You can just give them a rule. Mm-hmm. Right, and rules right, are right. guidelines. They're not the answer. Mm-hmm. And so if we can see that woman, first of all, acknowledge her discomfort, that, that, that pain is not a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right. Pain is not a mistake. It's a message mm-hmm. from the body. The body has the language of pleasure and pain, and it's trying to tell you something. It wants your attention. It's like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum. Totally. It's exactly, I was just thinking this. It's exactly <laughs> like child's be, a child's behavior. It's exactly. not about the behavior. It's trying to get it's your involved. attention. And exactly. so yeah. what I want us to know is that yoga is a technique, but it's not about technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Teaching, our teaching does not come from us. It comes through us. And as we mature as teachers, I think we, we cling less to the absolute rigidity of the rules, not that we're trying to break the rules on purpose, but we see that they're on one level of reality. They're quite useful. We all need to drive on one side of the street, you know, mm-hmm. just works better that way. Well, the body has certain movement abilities. And when we study that and understand it, that information gets transformed through our own practice into knowledge and over time becomes wisdom. And because teaching a yoga class is not about giving information, Hmm. information never made anyone happy. It's what, how that information is integrated. So maybe, maybe, maybe in those kinds of instances, we are mistaking as teachers discipline with struggle. Mm. And to me, discipline is never about force. It's always about consistency. A disciplined student is one that gets on the mat every day for 15 minutes, Mm. not the student who once a week maybe does it. You know, it's that consistency is what discipline really is. And when we think about discipline as consistency, instead of rules, Mm -hmm. then we make space for curiosity and learning. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of like discipline sometimes, you know, for all of us, discipline can sort of become will, right? When we want to be like willful, (laughs) exactly, about putting our bodies somewhere. You will not get up for 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I love in the book how you walk through... Well, you present the myth and then you, you kind of walk through and you, you connect the dots between what the sort of cascading effect on the body and you present things. And it's funny because at the end of the book, you, you say, people ask me how I came up with these myths that, and I have an unsatisfying answer, which is just, I don't know, but they're just there, right? Like all of the myths that you, I think almost all of them that you present, it, I've heard of them. I'm sure anybody who is even in the fitness world has heard of them too. Mm-hmm. So they're there, right? These myths are there. And yet so many of us are walking around in pain and you just connect the dots really well between the myth and then the cascading effect on the body. 
you know, that can unconsciously lead to pain and then a, a number of other cascading effects. So first one in the book is actually my favorite, which is the tucking the tailbone. <laughs> and it might be my favorite because I grew, I grew up doing ballet and there's a lot of tucking the tailbone in ballet and uh, there's a lot of pain in ballet. I mean, I, I, I feel like I actually escaped relatively unscathed because I was pretty young when I stopped, but I had to relearn how to allow my lower back to have its curve. I really had to completely relearn that and like turn my, not have my, my legs turned out. And so it's something I've just been acutely aware of since I started doing yoga. And, but I don't, I don't think I've ever walked through the effects the way you walk through them. Like, you know, you tuck the tailbone, your chest kind of slumps naturally when you do that. So then you lift the breastbone and then you, you're reversing the natural thoracic curve and then you've got to bring your head back. And so then you're perhaps flattening the cervical curve. And then what are the, you know, what are the effects of that? So I just thought you did that really beautifully. And it's, this is like what we yoga nerds love, right? Is, which is like the connecting the body and the mind of, oh, I can think about this and I can change the way I'm, I'm moving through the world. And then it can have this beautiful, like all over effect on my life. So I just, that, that was something I really loved that you did well. Thank you so much. Because to me, the dusty book of yoga philosophy and psychology on the book, on the shelf, bookshelf, only means something if I can integrate it and live it. The, the perfectly performed handstand is meaningless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have this joke I may have told you before, but what are they going to put on my tombstone? We miss her so much her hamstrings were so loose. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's the performance aspect of the asana. I feel sad about. Yeah. But, you know, thank you so much for your kind words about the lower back. One of my workshops that I'm doing online a lot now, and very fascinated with is one. I love to make up these titles. Like when I, I remember when the yoga journal conferences were happening, I'd often teach a course called stop tucking your tailbone exclamation point, because that title is so, you know, radical. Mm-hmm. And we do tuck the tailbone in weight bearing though. I don't know if you've read that in the book, like plank pose up plank poke straight arm. There are times yep. when we need to tuck the tailbone when we want to stabilize the body against gravity, but, but we don't need to do that in Tadasana. Mm-hmm. And I make that point, but anyway, so in the first chapter, there's that story about the woman who had a small waist and really round buttocks, mm-hmm. this beautiful female archetype. And she said she came up willingly to, in the class and she was like, I'm always been told to tuck, 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 tuck. And even when I tuck as hard as I can, they're never happy with it. Mm-hmm. And I think the pelvis is everything. This is this new th- course I'm into right now. The pelvis is everything. And because everything comes from the pelvis, think about it. Life comes from the pelvis. You eliminate, you digest, you take in life. You know, it, it's how you propel yourself through life is movement comes from the pelvis. The pelvis is a messy, wonderful, fluid thing. Mm -hmm. It's the archetypal feminine. If you look at these, these ancient 
goddesses, fertility goddesses, they have these massive hips, right? Yeah. And it's a symbol of fertility and life and and pleasure, the pleasure center, you know, a lot of pleasure comes directly from the pelvis. I mean, and so when we, I think that maybe what's happened and I may have come from dance. I also did ballet and I escaped like you did when I have a few little, you know, kind of knobby bones on my feet that shouldn't be there, but mm-hmm. that maybe somehow as we became more civilized, quote unquote, and we wanted to control sexuality, sensuality. Right. And, and we made the pelvis, we tuck it. Right. We like shameful. It. Yeah. Like we, we negate the belly. We want the female belly to be hollow and the female belly is round. It's a, it's a love pillow. It's like a round, soft place yeah. because you can't, go to the bathroom, you can't give birth, you can't orgasm, you can't function, the pelvis can't function if it's tight and hard and withdrawn. And I don't know, maybe I'm just really going off into la-la land, but it seems to me that the pelvis is a messy, wonderful place of the deep, dark feminine. Mm -hmm. And this attempt to control it and to tuck it and to tighten it and to minimize it Mm -hmm. is really patriarchal. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I have, I have never thought about that. But as soon as you said, I'm really, in, you know, the pelvis is everything. It's like, I knew exactly what you meant. You're absolutely right. I mean, and when you think about like, when you compare a female pelvis to a male pelvis, or like, especially when you think about like the, the visual of it, right? it's more narrow. It is smaller. It is uh, the male. It is more minimized. So it's almost like trying to get women to, yeah, like minimize themselves to fit into that controlled role. It's this social awareness that's been really, you know, in the 17, 18, 19, like to minimize female sexuality and sensuality. Right. Yeah. And you want to know an absolutely life-changing anatomical fact? Sure. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) All right. When we as anatomists, because I teach anatomy, describe the pelvis, you look in any book, Gray's Anatomy, which is like the Bible. When I was in PT school, my anatomy teacher kept saying, well, in the Bible this and in the Bible that. And I grew up in the South and I'm like, I've read the Bible and I never heard about that in the Bible. And Mm. she was referring to Gray's Anatomy. She called it the Bible. Oh, (laughs) It took me like two days to figure out what she was talking about. All right. That's hysterical. So even in that august volume, anatomists always describe the female pelvis as how it's different from the male pelvis. It's wider here. It's more, it has a greater inlet, a greater outlet. The the ischial tuberosities are further apart. The hip joints point, you know, in relation to the male pelvis. Mm -hmm. But now that embryology is such a sophisticated science. The truth of the matter is, my darling, that when an embryo, I don't know technically if it's an embryo, because an embryo, we use it just to mean a small being, but Mm -hmm. it's technically means a certain weeks of of the gestation. But for just our general understanding, the embryo is early on in, in gestation 
if the embryo is not then acted upon by androgens, which are male hormones like testosterone and others. Now, women have a little bit of testosterone and some androgens, but not a lot. But if the androgens do not act upon coming from the baby, the fetus, whatever, the embryo, they don't act upon that developing pelvis, the default of nature is female. Wow. So what that means, I mean, it makes sense. If you're nature and you don't know if this baby, you want the race to continue, so your safe bet is to make the pelvis female unless something stops that. So actually, if we're correct as anatomists, and I have an anatomy book called Yoga Body, and I follow the traditional way too, but I mentioned mm-hmm. this in there, that it's actually, this is the female human pelvis. This is how the male pelvis differs from it. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? That, because all the early anatomists were guess which, what they were. Yeah, they're all men. Interesting. And oh so they gosh. set themselves as the standard. And we are the standard. <laughs> wow. And we're the weirdos. Oh my gosh. And so there's politics in anatomy, I'm telling you. Oh yeah. But the pelvis is everything. So I have a homework assignment for you and everybody who might listen to this. It's a fascinating thing to do. Just notice that movement almost always originates from the pelvis. Mm -hmm. So right now you're sitting down. Yes. Yep. Okay. So move your chair back a little bit. Now, your feet are flat on the floor and you're going to stand up. What's the first thing you do? No, no. What's the first thing you do? When I'm going to stand. To your pelvis forward. Yeah, yeah. To get your center gravity over the base of support of your feet and now you stand up. Right. I'm standing up. Now you're going to sit down. What's the first thing you do? You put your, you put your butt out. Yep. And you bend your knees. Yeah. yeah. So the pelvis initiates so many of our movements. Like, just think about it during your day, how, how often you move from the pelvis and the spine receives the action instead of thinking of the spine as creating it. So in Tadasana, to bring this whole long shaggy dog story back to Tadasana, I teach Tadasana from the pelvis, mm. not the spine. Mm. Because if the pelvis, which means basin or pot, if the pot is balanced on the femoral heads, the spine knows it, it has its natural shape. Right, right. Which takes minimal metabolic energy, minimal muscular activity, saves energy in the body, and is stable. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. It's, it's making That's me realize... today I have made sense to you, so I'm, I'm batting a thousand over here. That's why you're a repeat guest, Judith. <laughs> I mean... I thought this... it was my great and wonderful joke. <laughs> I'll answer that. This is making me realize why I love to do cat cow so much or, you know, like variations on cat cow because it's, it's, it's a moment in practice where you just, you focus your attention so clearly on your pelvis and you just let all the tension go. You know, it's, it's, you're making me realize like, as you're saying, everything originates from there. It's like, yeah, I actually hold a lot of tension there a lot often, I think. And that's probably... I could probably, you know, let that go a little bit and feel it would probably have a a holistic effect on, on my whole body. I really know it's time for us to end our lovely chat, but I beg you to let me tell you something about the pelvic floor. Do it. Yes, let's do it. 
there's a wonderful book called Pelvic Liberation by Leslie Howard that I highly recommend. She teaches workshops in the pelvic floor. And one of the things that, you know, there's every woman in America has problems with their bladder Mm -hmm. pretty much at one time or another. And there's two kinds of incontinence. There's stress incontinence, sneeze incontinence kind of thing, cough incontinence. And then there's urge incontinence. Hmm. And generally what women are told about the pelvic floor, if they're told anything by medical personnel is to do a million kegels, right? which are the contractions of the pelvic floor, do them at stoplights, do them, you know, start and stop the flow of urine, teach your daughters, blah, blah, blah. Well, what Leslie Howard, who is my authority on this, has found out that that, and she and I actually did consulted on and consulting again for some more of it, a program from the National Institutes of Health on pelvic pelvic floor, so she's great, is that yoga, women in yoga more often than not have too tight a pelvic floor and too tight a pelvic floor can contribute to stress, to urge incontinence, hmm. urge incontinence by having too tight a pelvic floor, which leads us to Mula Banda, which is one of the things that I really question for women. Oh. I, ha- I think when you do Tadasana well and you're back on your heels and your normal curves, there's a spontaneous lift of the pelvic floor, which is Mula Banda. It's not a mental thing. It's an energetic thing. The pelvic floor rises up and maintains its normal tone. Mm-hmm. I completely, uh, yeah. I mean, I, maybe this is a topic for another day. I don't know. I know. I actually think, so tell me the name of the book again. Pelvic liberation. Okay. I'm, I'm on it. Leslie Howard, just like it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the foreword to that book. Oh, okay. I think it's so great. You know what? I so enjoy talking to you. Me too, Judith. Thank you so much for including me in your work with such a graciousness (laughs) and a receptivity and your just general all-around loveliness. I really appreciate what you do, having a child and a home and a husband and your own practice and other things going on in your life and you find time to use the internet to make all of our lives better. And I'm deeply appreciating the fact that I share the planet with you. Oh gosh. Wow. Well, that means so much to me. I, I really appreciate you too and your openness and your humor and your wisdom. And uh, yeah. And thank you for sharing yourself with everyone. I know everyone would just appreciate like the lotus at home in the muddy water and boy, are we in the muddy water right now? Yeah, that's right. Namaste and much love to you and everyone. Keep practicing. You too. Thank you, Judith. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, so as I mentioned, I will put a link to where you can pre-order Judith's book and get 30% off. It's judithhansenlassiter.com if you just want to go there directly. And if you want to find out more about Judith, you can go to judith.yoga. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast, you can support it by writing a review or giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, you can leave a review. And I always, always, always appreciate it. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.